technology feels like modern day magic. When you think about just the amount of things that you could do like on your phone, in your car, on your computer, like it's just, it's crazy to me that just in such a short amount of time, we've been able to come so far. From our corporate headquarters in Plano, Texas, this is Tyler. This is Kelsey. This is Allison. Thanks for joining Toyota Untold. Each year, the Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, takes over Las Vegas in a display of enough futuristic innovation, gadgetry, and wizardry to make a believer of even the most resolute technophobes. Certainly, the ideas that will drive consumer change in the technology sphere are debuted here. And on the show floor, what was once a dream begins to become part of our world. More than 4,400 companies exhibit on the show floor, walked by over 182,000 attendees from over 160 countries. From a glass toaster and egg whisperer that tells you which eggs are the oldest, to digital sleep aids that retrain your brain, and of course, TVs the size of your garage door, CES delivers astounding gizmos of every size. For Toyota, the mission at CES is a little more serious. Innovations in automated driving, new safety, connected and alternative fuel cell technologies, plus the range of mobility solutions currently in development give Toyota a strong slate of news on the floor. It's our chance to offer a glimpse of the technologies that will change society and define the future. And here at Toyota, we like to stay on the cutting edge of this revolution. But it's not just about the stuff, cool as it is. As Toyota's Executive Vice President of Sales, Bob Carter, said on stage at CES, even though new technology is important, what matters is how it serves society. And that's why our global president, Akio Toyota, wants our company to transition from an automobile company to a mobility company, pursuing mobility for all. So today, we're not just looking at cars, we're looking at the future of mobility, which in some cases is actually already here. We're also joined by special guest and co-host Austin Evans, a tech influencer who's been at this longer than the idea of being a tech influencer or YouTuber has existed. So to kick off our CES special, let's sit down with Austin to learn more about what his world looks like and the trends he's seen at CES over the past nine years. So settle in for a trip to CES 2019, the closest thing on Earth to a rocket to Pluto. I am here today with Austin Evans, who's a technology influencer. So welcome to Toyota Untold. Oh, thanks for having me. Of course. So we're here. We are at CES. I'm kind of excited. I've been here for a couple of years. I've actually never made it to the show floor. <laughs> I hear that story from a lot of people, which is crazy to me because I live on the show floor right? every week. <laughs> you just go from like booth to booth to booth to see everything, right? Yeah, and absolutely. I have never been to the show That's floor. That's crazy. That's crazy. Are you going? Well, you, we're both going to go this year, right? Yes. I mean, I hope to make it to the show floor because we're going to stop by and see some very oh, cool partners of Toyota. Right, right. So tell me, how do you become a tech influencer? I mean, I never planned on it. I mean, that wasn't even a term when I started. So my first videos were live in 2009. Mm-hmm. So it's been almost a full 10 years at this point. And in, in the early days, it was really, really simple stuff. Right? right. I mean, like I would be like reviewing like apps and stuff when like the app store was first coming out. Like I had no idea where any of this There's would like, lead. 10 apps. <laughs> exactly. No, no, that was like one of the things. Was like it was so there were so few apps. And that back then, you know, it's like, oh, five dollars. Should I spend five dollars on a thing for my phone? Like it was like, crazy. Ooh, yeah. So you went into video gaming reviewing and then you went into phones and computers. You like to build computers, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was actually one of the things that sort of really drove the channel. That was uh, I don't know, maybe a few years into it. One of the things I realized was I was starting to build my first computer. I really wanted to get something that would be better for like editing and everything. Mm-hmm. And the problem was is that at the time there really weren't a lot of videos that would not necessarily show you how to build computers, but more importantly, what to build them with, right? So like what parts should you use? Because obviously it changes very, very often. And I had like a small budget. So that was something that I was like, oh, I'm going to build my first computer. I'm going to share the the list of parts that uh, you know I used. And the video did really well. So I started doing a couple more and a couple more. And that was really one of the main drivers of sort of getting the, the audience and sort of getting things popular in those early days. But it was one of those things where, I mean, it's just fun to build computers. Like, yeah. uh, have you ever built one? I have not, but I have a friend who loves to build computers and he talks about it all the time. And it's I, fun. I just think that that's like so like 3019 <laughs> to me, you know? It's, it's adult Lego. It's yeah. not like anyone could build a computer. He like, said that. He's like, it's not that hard. Actually. Yeah. I've, I've shown how, uh, people how to build a computer while blindfolded. Like, it's, it's a really? lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Like I built a computer with my, my dad. Like we've done all kinds of fun videos. It's it's really fun. <laughs> all right. If your dad can do it, I can definitely oh, he can, do it. Oh yeah. He's, he's a pro at this point. All right. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so then at what point do you go from like, okay, I got some likes. Okay. I'm getting more likes to then like, Okay, now companies are sending you things. To oh, review. I remember that. 
Like, how did that transition happen? I, it was it was really small, right? So it took maybe two years before like I ever got like an email from a company. Yeah. And it was this, I forget the name of it, but it was this like little arm for your phone. So it was like sort of like, like a magnetic mount where you could like, like use it as like a tripod or whatever. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever. They sent it to me. I did a whole video on it. It was so exciting. Which obviously at this point, just it seems like, you know, it was eight <laughs> years ago. Like, what? Like why was I so excited? But at the time, like, it was the first time that… Now I just… I got something free. Like, obviously, that was like kind of a cool thing. But most importantly, it was like, oh, look. Someone saw my videos, reached out and said, hey, we have this thing. Would you like to take a look at it? Like, mm-hmm. that to me was like, oh, wow. There's actually really something here. Yeah. That's awesome. So, you start to get more of those. It, was there a time when you're, where you ever reached out to the companies and said, hey, oh, I'd like to do that. All the time. All the time. I got almost no responses ever. Really? No, never. It was like, I mean, at the time, to be fair, it was a much different space. So we're talking, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago. The idea of I'm a YouTuber was not a common term, right? And if They're it was... Like, we have retail stores. Why exactly, would we give it to you? Exactly. And so like back in the day, like I would ask for phones to borrow for like a couple of weeks to make a video or, you know, headphones, all kinds of things. But the issue was, was that no one really knew what YouTube was. No one really appreciated it. And also, I'm like this 17-year-old kid who's like asking for stuff. It's like, oh, I've got, I've got 4,000 subscribers on my YouTube channel. <laughs> right. And there's like, okay, delete. Like, it just wasn't, it wasn't anything. It took a long, long time before just people just realized that there was something there. And obviously, the audiences sort of started to grow and grow. And it kind of hit a point where a lot of companies couldn't say no. Like, oh, wait a minute. This is actually something that's really serious. Austin has been attending and covering CES for nearly a decade and has watched the show change from a trade show for expected products like new phones to a vision board for futurists. CES is like one of those special places where, I mean, it's kind of like the, the, the big game of the, uh, of the tech space. There's really no way of getting around it. Oh, man. So how have you seen tech change in those nine years? To me, it's gone from like, okay, cool, I'm going to take a look at the new big Samsung phone or whatever, to now... I want to find what's next because there's a lot of little like gems that you'll find like sort of walking around or taking meetings with. And it's like, normally you would never see this stuff, right? And a lot right. of the time it's very, very early and actually won't go on sale for a while. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to be able to walk around, okay, hey, wait a minute, that thing, that's going to be big. And sure enough, a year or two later, it's like, ah, yeah, I did a video on that two years ago. And it's just that cool kind of thing of just, I don't know, it's just, I really enjoy trying to find the weird, the cool, the unknown stuff that maybe not necessarily everyone knows about. Yeah. Can you think of an example over the past couple of years? Of yeah. Something? Yeah. One of the first things was, uh, was USB-C and Thunderbolt 3, which I know it doesn't sound like a really sexy topic, but uh, it's the, the same sort of connector, which has taken over basically everything. And it was one of those things where I was walking around the show floor and they had like this little booth. Like, hey, look, we have a new USB. I was like, okay, what's that? And I started looking. I was like, oh, this is really cool. And now it's like basically everywhere. But it's just one of those cool things of like, hey, you know what? This is just one of those minor little things that might not seem all that exciting. This is a bad example, I know. No, USB no, cables. I, think- I love USB cables. <laughs> Listen, if you can get excited about USB cables, <laughs> anything is possible. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's something little like that just changes. It changes so much on how we use you know, technology. Absolutely. And that's the thing, like you can look at it from the bigger scale, right? Mm-hmm. Of like, oh, look at this TV. This TV is great. But there's all the little components of like, oh, it's HDR or it's OLED or it's 4K. Like all mm-hmm. these things were officially announced. And usually at CES is like, oh, this is the very first HDR TV or OLED or whatever. For Austin and many CES attendees, the show has become a longer range market forecast and the best way to keep far ahead of the curve. So it's like, sure, you might not see like the grand picture of the actual thing that you're going to buy this year, but you'll see that new technology, which is going to be coming soon. And that's the part that I really get excited about because then I get to learn about it and I can talk about it. And when I see that thing actually come out, it's like, oh yeah, I know all about that. I'm, 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 I went to CES. <laughs> and sometimes companies are really cool and will sort of like brief me on something that might not be coming out till way later in the year. I can't do a video on it, but I can go, oh yeah, I know about it. So when the thing comes out, I'm like, ah, I just jump right on it. Perhaps one of the biggest changes at CES has been the appearance of companies not usually thought of as part of the tech industry, such as automakers. And this is where mobility comes into play. Physical and social mobility go way beyond the wheel. Nine years ago, when Austin Evans first started prowling the exhibit hall of CES, companies like Toyota weren't even here. And most consumers weren't thinking about the tech in their vehicle beyond the CD player and the speakers. But as we look forward... And even as we look at the vehicles coming out today, there are sensors everywhere and the features they connect to are increasingly standard. The car is now a computer. It kind of seems like a natural fit for CES to become a little bit more auto-focused. Yeah. Just because, I mean, I think the car industry has to embrace tech and it has been doing so at such a rapid pace. It's like, obviously, this is, this is the spot, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's obviously great to have like a new specific model, 
But as far as the actual tech, which is going to be in across the entire portfolio, that becomes like a much, much bigger deal. So I definitely think that it's been interesting to see that. I also, I mean, there's definitely the trends that you see every year. I think that 5G is definitely one of the big ones this year. I don't know how widespread it's really going to be in 2019. It feels like it's still kind of in those early phases. And, you know, for example, like the, the phones that are supporting 5G are you know, going to be massive and cost a ton of money. But it's, yeah. it's one of those things where, you know, next year, the year after, it's going to be in everyone's phone. It's going to be in everyone's car. It's going to be like everywhere, right? Yeah. Just like as 4G sort of took a few years to kind of get going, but now it's everywhere. I think 5G is going to be the same deal. Our next guest is Toyota AI Ventures' Jim Adler. We sit down to learn exactly what Toyota AI Ventures is all about why Toyota is investing in startups, and how the technology we're investing in is helping us realize the future of mobility and moving the auto industry forward. Adler has a rich history in tech and startups, and at one time was something of a rocket man. Welcome to the Toyota Untold podcast. Yesterday, I had the pleasure of interviewing Austin Evans for it. But today, Austin, you're my co-host on this journey. I'm very excited about it. So this Toyota Untold podcast episode is going to be about advanced technology and what we're kind of seeing here at CES. So we have founding manager, director of Toyota AI Ventures, Jim Adler. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I just want to know kind of you started as a rocket engineer, right? That's right. Right? That's Back in right. the day. And Back so, in the day, yes. <laughs> so then how do you go from rocket engineer, right? Mm-hmm. To kind of Silicon Valley startups. Where did that transition happen? I loved my stint launching rockets. What could be more fun for uh, a kid in, uh, right this out of... This is like old school launching right, rockets. Yeah, right out, of, right out of school, launching rockets out of the Cape, 300-foot boosters, billion-dollar payloads. A general doing his uh, his go no goes uh, on launch, and you're 25, and you're like avionics, and you're like go because <laughs> you could stop the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And I just loved it, and I worked day and night, slept at the lab, slept at the factory, and I just realized that I had this sort of restless energy mm-hmm. that a lot of my colleagues didn't have. <laughs> and although I loved it and working on avionic systems for launch vehicles, I realized that I didn't really at the time belong in such a giant corporation. And I just started to get this sort of bug to do something myself. Like many entering the tech sphere, Adler turned his gaze towards Seattle, where Microsoft was a ruler of tech and the startup culture. He started his first companies there and then took his next logical step. Silicon Valley. I joined a, a Googler and a Facebooker on this company called Metanautics that we sold to Microsoft in 2016. And at that time, I tend to do a startup, then I rest, and I do a startup, then I rest. So this was my rest. I was going to go work for Toyota Research Institute. Yeah. Hasn't turned out to be much of a rest, <laughs> but it's been an incredible amount of fun. Sounds and about I would right. have been restless anyway and looking for something. So the, the level of engagement, the opportunity to tap into the entrepreneurial roots of Toyota mm-hmm. has been so invigorating. So I just want to make sure I get this right. So you want to, you didn't want to join a big company when you left, uh, you know, r- launching rockets. So you joined Toyota. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah, like uh, twenty years yeah. later. Okay. Uh, right. But also, I think that hardware has caught up to software. So I spent the intervening years mostly focused on data, software, cryptography, these very software kind of disciplines. And when I saw that, as Mark Andreessen said, software is eating the world. And now cars are on the menu. I was really intrigued by, wow, I can have what I had in my 20s launching rockets. Now that expertise and that those technologies are now coming to automotive. Mm. So technologies of data and cloud and software, artificial intelligence are now coming to disrupt this industry that uh, I've loved since I was 16 and my first Corona. So... I thought it, it just felt right. And I, I'm a big proponent of do what feels natural and right. And it just felt natural and right. Awesome. So let's take a step back. Can you sort of walk through what the main day-to-day job that you do is? Yeah. So Toyota AI Ventures is Toyota's first dedicated venture capital fund. Uh, it was founded in July 2017. It's a $100 million fund. And it's focused on investing in early stage companies that are focusing on artificial intelligence data, cloud, as applied to autonomous mobility and robotics. The automotive industry is really becoming a mobility industry. In fact, Akio Toyota said, I think at last CES, that Toyota is now a mobility company. Well, what does that mean? Many of the startups are defining what mobility means. And so we are investing in those companies that are defining mobility. 
Gotcha. It's really interesting to think, I mean, this is the first time that Toyota has been involved in a fund like this, right? This is not a, a typical sort of car company move, right? Yeah. I mean, Toyota has done individual investments over, over the years. This is the first dedicated fund that is very much modeled like a venture capital fund. And I thought that was very important because I've seen having raised a lot of money in my career from corporate venture funds, more times than not, they get it horribly wrong. And they don't realize how fragile startups are. And they project their own desires and needs and expectations onto these startups. And the startups are incapable of dealing with them. And they literally love them to death by putting a lot of requirements and sort of tactical goals on them. And it, it really distracts them. And I was, dedic- I was determined not to let Toyota be a bad corporate investor since I know what a bad corporate investor is because I've had bad corporates nearly kill some of my startups during my career. Interesting. So you've been on both sides. So how does that help you when you're looking for companies to invest in and making sure that you're not being the bad corporate investor? Well, I, I think a lot of it is structure. And one of the, my biggest concerns is speed. One of the challenges that corporate funds often have is a very laborious uh, approval process for any investment. I was really worried about that. Uh, Automotive moves slow. Toyota is not known for being incredibly fast. But when I went through the approval process and went all the way up to the top of the company, the mandate from Akio Toyota was go fast. Mm -hmm. And that was music to my ears. Interesting. And he said it uh, in, in, in many contexts. We need to attack and defend at the same time. And so defending means defend our business, defend making the best, safest, most durable, maintainable vehicles on the market today. Mm -hmm. But we also have to attack new markets. And those don't necessarily run at the same speed. The attacking part needs to run faster. Mm -hmm. And Akio Toyota gets that. The top management of Toyota gets that. Uh, I've been given that mandate We've done 19 deals now since July 2017. Wow. And we are moving fast. And that's an important message to the startups that we're not what you may think Toyota is with respect to the things you might be skeptical about. Everybody loves Toyota because the the high integrity and transparency Mm -hmm. and, and capability of the company. But is Toyota the right investor? And I wanted to prove to the startup community that, yes, Toyota is a great brand. Uh, and incredibly admired, but can also be a really helpful partner to you as you grow your company. At CES, Jim, Austin, and Tyler were also joined by Doris Schooler, the CEO and co-founder of Intuition Robotics, which is one of the 19 startups that Toyota AI Ventures is currently investing in. He showed an incredibly cool video at CES introducing their first product, LEQ. LEQ is the sidekick for happier aging, a friendly, intelligent, and inquisitive presence that's designed to improve the lives of older adults. It kind of looks like the Pixar lamp, and it's adorable. LEQ is going to have her work cut out for her. The statistics on aging are staggering and display the scale of the challenges facing society in the decades ahead. Between 2015 and 2030, the number of people in the world aged 60 years or over is expected to grow by 56%. From just over 900 million to nearly 1.5 billion. By 2050, the global population of people older than 60 is expected to jump to 2 billion. In the United States, the number of Americans over the age of 65 is expected to double from roughly 50 million today to nearly 100 million by 2060. So let's let Dora teach us a little bit about intuition robotics, LEQ, and how this technology can help us stay active and engaged as we age. At its heart, what we do is we bring hardware to life. Okay. We created an AI agent Mm -hmm. that can understand what's going on in the scene in front of it. It might be a living room. It might be a cabin in a car. And based on that, it can actually make cognitive decisions and then start interacting with the individual. So for people who might not know, and I am one of them, but the video that I saw today basically looks like a very cute robot that senior citizens can interact with to keep them their minds fresh, right? Correct. So we started the company with the goal of helping older adults yeah. avoid loneliness and social isolation. Because once grannies. They... I love it. <laughs> no, but, but, but it is an important mission because the world population is aging. And with that, about half the people self-admit 
that they feel lonely and isolated. And yeah. the data now is very, very clear that once you enter that state, you deteriorate. However, the good news is when people stay active and engaged, they push out frailty and decline. Mm -hmm. We ask ourselves, how can we help? And it turned out that we had to develop a lot of technology to make tech really accessible, but also to change the interaction model we have with machines. Until now, we've always told machines what to do, whether it's with a mouse click or a swipe of a finger or with Alexa, you give it a command, but it's always user-generated command. And the first product we created, LEQ, uh, and the video you mentioned is available mm -hmm. at leq.com. The product is available for pre-order as it. of yesterday <laughs> afternoon. So <laughs> uh, come one, come all. But um, this is the first instance of a product that actually talks to you. And not because you programmed it to, because it decided to wake up and suggest some kind of an activity to you right now at this moment, trying to anticipate your needs and trying to help you stay active and engaged. And uh, true to, to your statement, it kind of looks like a lamp. We were very much inspired by the Pixar animation logo. And we gave it what we call body language. So it has degrees of freedom. It can look at you. It lights up. Um, it talks to the older adult, tells them about messages from the grandkids, reads those messages, looks at the pictures together with them, maybe has a snarky comment or two about those <laughs> pictures, gets them to reply. We do a lot of things on just keeping people part of the community and, uh, and engaged. So we tell them about the news. We tell them interesting facts that sometimes bring a smile like, hey, did you know a giraffe is the only animal that can lick its own ear? <laughs> right? And that <laughs> causes people to smile a little bit, which is really important. And then maybe we follow up and say, hey, you know, there's a really interesting lecture about giraffes. Do you want to hear it? Right? So, so it's always about engaging, bringing families closer together and providing tools that help older adults stay independent longer in their own home. Fantastic. Can we get the Toyota Untold podcast <laughs> offered to <laughs> Hey, you want to hear a podcast about yeah, Toyota? Why not? Why not? We're doing podcast integration very soon. So, you know. It's yeah. got to be really interesting to work with such a different sort of demographic, right? I mean, obviously, a lot of the sort of the tech that's here at the show is very much aimed at like sort of a younger audience. So I guess were some of the challenges that you faced in sort of reaching a little bit of an older audience who might not be so familiar with tech, is some of that kind of coming and trickling down to some of the other products that you're working on? Yeah, we thought it's a very difficult challenge until we started deploying the technology with automotives. And then we understood seniors are really easy compared to... It's really? <laughs> no, really? I kid. <laughs> uh, I don't think grandma knows how to turn on the microwave. Yeah, look, that, that's the whole point, right? I mean, the whole tech industry is designing products for the 24 to 35-year-old demographic, right? That's a demographic that has absolutely no money. <laughs> okay, it's Amazing. full of student debt, right? Um, Just but we call all them out be right like now. <laughs> and, and when you think about it, we're at the point now that you have to use technology to be an active uh, participant in, in the community. I mean, even listening to music, there are no more CD stores. So how do, what do we expect of the older adult to do? Like, it'll be hard for them to stream Spotify, right? So we asked ourselves, what if we build a beautifully designed product? And it was designed by Eve Bahar. It won design awards. It, look at it. It's a beautifully designed product for older adults and not hide it. Right, not show because people don't want to deal with aging. Not um, show half of the pictures of younger people and then a few silver-haired people. But say no, this is designed for an older adult. And we actually worked with 125 older adults and their and their families for three years in the design process to make it a beautiful, delightful, easy to use product for them by them. So it's interesting, how does some of this stuff transition into the automotive space? Because it seems like a lot of the work that you're doing does kind of, it's very applicable, right? Yeah, we were, we were surprised to find out. But, but at the end of the day, all we're trying to do with LEQ is to allow for an experience which is easier and natural. We call it a digital companion as opposed to a digital assistant. Allowing the AI to talk to you and anticipate your needs and bring up things you, you might not even know or remember to use, right? Like suggesting for you to have a drink of water or play a trivia game or what have you, or listen to music together. And when we look at the use case of automotive, it's actually very similar. You know, we spend significant amount of our time in the car and there's more and more technology being deployed in the car. And the layman user might actually, I know, forget about the layman user, when I rented a car for the first time that had active ADAS systems, Right? I wanted to turn left and the car didn't let me turn left. 
I freaked out a little bit, yeah. I have to admit, <laughs> yeah. right? There was haptic feedback, there was buzzing, it yeah. was late at night. <laughs> like, what's going on? Right. Luckily, the car probably saved me from, from an unfortunate incident, but this is not easy to understand. And when you look at the experience inside of the cabin, as we drive less and less, we're actually going to make decisions on which car we buy, not because of the powertrain, but based on the experience. So we're imagining a world together with Toyota of imagine what happens when you walk into a car and the car greets you and maybe treats you differently when it's just you or you and your kids or you and your wife-to-be, right? Is it aware of the car itself, of the maintenance of the car? Is it aware of the ADAS systems and the guardian systems and autonomous systems and helps you navigate them, helps you understand them? And what is the role of that engine to create an extension of the brand such that the experience inside of a Toyota is radically different from an experience inside of a different brand that has other values and the brand identity anyway um, is unique, right? As opposed to have the exact same experience in every single car. Um, and there are lots of use cases if you have time to, to go into them. But in general, we're looking at five specific areas. One is around mobility. I need to get here, I need to get there, etc. The second is around working the complicated systems in the car whether it's around safety, around drowsiness, around using autonomy, around handoff between autonomous and non-autonomous and many other use cases. The third is about fun and delight. So imagine the car kind of, imagine you had a family driver, okay, that knows everybody really well. So he's an expert on driving, of course. Uh, and he's an expert on the maintenance of the car, which is another use case. But he also knows you, right? So maybe with the kids, he's like, hey, how was school today? And he sees their board and says, let's play a trivia game. Right. Um, or maybe does some karaoke, uh, right? And, and things of that nature. So I think we have a role to play in, in curating and animating an experience which is unique and memorable inside of the car, which correlates with the brand. If there could be an experience where the car played I Spy with my kids and I didn't have to. <laughs> but why not? That would be yeah. amazing. And, and may, maybe you should, though, participate, right? Maybe it's going to convince you a little bit to participate. But maybe if you're talking to your husband and you need a little bit of peace and quiet, maybe it's keeping the kids occupied, but not just putting them in front of a screen, but like doing something. It engages yeah. the whole family. Right? Yeah. You're, you're the family driver Absolutely. who knows everyone in the family. Absolutely. And the kids and you and knits everyone together. Right. And then you have somebody important like Jim join you. So all of a sudden, maybe the car says, oh, Dor, do you want to continue that lecture about neuroscience? And you always <laughs> listen to together because it knows that like... <laughs> that door is so steady. Yeah. This is why. Exactly. The as soon as he leaves, he's like, on. all right, Howard Stern, let's put it back on. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. Can I ask you a question? So I am personally faced with, I have a mother-in-law who lives by herself about probably almost 45 to 50 minutes away from us. So, you know, close enough that she comes and takes care of the grandkids, but far enough away <laughs> that is comfortable for all of us. Safety I feel like. Exactly. Yeah. You got to have a buffer zone. Yes. <laughs> so you said LEQ is now available. Correct. So for someone like me, you know, can I go and buy it? What does that mean for someone like me and having a, you know... Uh... Yeah, yeah, sure. So so LEQ is designed for older adults that don't know how to work technology. Okay. And most of our users are people that um, care for their loved ones, so either grandchildren or children that buy it on their behalf. Um, we started selling yesterday on LEQ.com. There's a pre-order going on. Um, as part of that pre-order, uh, we're actually doing in-home installation on us. So we're a young company. We're only shipping to 20 cities in the U.S. Texas, um, Dallas. Yeah, I think it's on the list. Right. Yeah. I'll yeah. tell you. I'll uh, and we have a professional team coming to install and train and so on because we need to get this right. Yeah. I mean, um, providing a technical product for people that are not necessarily the most tech savvy on literally the most bleeding edge technology that's out there right now is something we need to be very serious about. Um, so we are, we're building up our muscle for support. We want to make sure it goes really well. We're also giving a year of free subscription to anybody that gets a pre-order oh, while wow. supplies last. And there are not <laughs> a lot of them because we're, we're trying, our goal this year is to get a few hundred units out mm -hmm. and to learn what it takes to be successful in the market, to learn what it takes to support this product, to learn what it takes to scale that product, kind of um, digest it, um, and then take a step of actually scaling it out. Um, Jim actually told me a sentence. I don't know if you remember, but I, I remember it well. He said, good companies don't die from starvation. They die from indigestion. 
And I think that's true. I think I think like when you you have a certain momentum, you're not going to starve. Like you're going to find investors that will keep you afloat. But making sure you don't take on too much to the point that you can't recover, right? right? Which doesn't mean you're not moving fast. It means you're not being stupid. We don't want to make mistake now spending millions of dollars in inventory and then start spending millions and millions of dollars in marketing to get that inventory out before we know we have successful, happy customers that love the product. The beta that you mentioned before, there's testimonials on leq.com. I think you've probably never seen people talk about how they feel with technology, with the sidekick in their home and how they feel when it says good morning to them and when it brings them closer to their grandchildren and teaches them new things. So we felt after a year of betas where we were very, very mindful of what we're trying to learn and achieve in that process and did a lot of improvements. We're now ready to go out, but we're going to be very careful in the beta, uh, in the in the first step of commercialization before we start exploding uh, the market. So bottom line is, yes, go to leq.com, <laughs> get a pre-order, and we'll ship around summertime. Perfect. Nice. And I can get my mother-in-law. I mean, I love her to death, but she like talks sometimes and I'm like, are you talking to me? And she's like, I'm just talking. <laughs> just talking. I'm just, I'm just, right. I'm just mumbling over here. Yeah. <laughs> so that could be something good. You, by the way, you, for... if you look at some of the vignettes on the website, yeah. um, you'll see things that are very familiar to that. And then like, LEQ does, you know, she can't understand everything. and she, But she still allows people to like talk and she will fade out to make clear that she's not listening. It's, it's a very interesting line. So then Jim, how did you meet Dora and how does Toyota take an interest in this? Or was it vice versa? Did you approach Toyota AI Ventures? Let me let you tell the story. Uh, yes, how I we, think how we so. I, I'll tell you the story. I think most people listening won't believe it, but but it's true. The fund wasn't even created yet. Okay, so so Toyota AI Ventures and TRI were like developing the strategy of investing, but they knew they want to do it. Right. We came out of stealth. I had a very short Skype call with Gil Pratt that runs TRI. Mm-hmm. A few days later, uh, we had the second one with the team. Within a week, the team flew to Israel, spent 48 hours with my team, mm-hmm. and we handshook on a deal. Wow. 48 hours. Come on. So Dora and I were at the whiteboard mm-hmm. during this 48-hour trip, sketching out the terms of the deal. <laughs> uh, and so th- this was after. So you know, Gil and the team and, and me, we're, we were all there yeah. uh, going through uh, the particulars of the company and the, and the vision and the product. Uh, and then we were just really impressed with certainly the team and most impressed by their appreciation of the market they're entering and how humbling it is to understand older adults and their needs and 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 just this level of uh, sensitivity to it. And also, they knew what they didn't need to do. They could sit on... You, you see so many robotics companies trying to do everything. Yeah. And Dora and the team knew that they wanted to focus on understanding the user experience not developing every layer of the stack. And that really impressed us as well because we saw many and, and Gil Pratt's background at, at DARPA and the robotic, robotics challenge. He's so well attuned to what needs to be invented, but more importantly, what doesn't need to be invented. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and when we talked to Dor, Dor and the team, they knew what didn't have to be invented. So that really got us excited. And then we saw the, 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 the status of the product and the roadmap. And then Gil looked at me and said, Get a deal with Done With Door. <laughs> wow. So, you know, we sat at the... At, and I still have that screenshot from yeah. the whiteboard uh, that basically was a term sheet on a whiteboard. And then we went back and we had it papered and went through the process. Yeah, and, and the papering took a while, right? Because that's where you meet corporate. Right. right. But but we never we never moved from what we agreed on. Mm-hmm. And even the negotiation was like none, no negotiation I've done, I've been in before because we established one principle that none of us want to win or make the other one lose. We mm-hmm. want to make it fair. Yeah. Right? And we want the company to succeed. And of course, we want Toyota to succeed. Mm-hmm. So, it just was a very open discussion on what do we need and what do you need and what's fair and what are industry standards. And there was no like, usually when you talk about valuations and this, it's it turns an uncomfortable into shark discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this wasn't an uncomfortable discussion. Um, kind of looked at, all right, I don't want to be a, a winner here and cause Jim to look like he overpaid and I don't want to feel like I got squeezed and screwed. Right, right. right. And that was the same in other other terms that go into an investment. So I think it was a, a tremendous experience. So Jim, what do we get out of this? That's a great question. So whenever we look at an investment, there's always the financial return part 
and the strategic return part. Mm -hmm. I don't think that they are disconnected. And I think many corporates make the mistake that strategic return should precede financial return. Like long as we get something out of it and quickly, that's all that matters. That's really not what matters. Actually, Mm -hmm. I would argue it's the opposite. If I have a strong company that's executing the market and is strong financially, they will be a better strategic partner for Toyota long term. And we will, the strategic return will be realized because we now we have a strong partner. Mm-hmm. And, and so you can go into any one of our portfolio companies and some of the strategic return is obvious. And I would argue that with, uh, with Intuition Robotics, it wasn't necessarily obvious from day one. We, we thought, hey, one day Toyota may be in the robotics business. Right, we already are in some mm-hmm. sense, but maybe in a much larger way. So that was okay. That made some strategic rationale. Only later, after the company matured, did we realize that this underlying technology actually could be leveraged in the car itself. Yeah, and that's why you go on this journey because nobody knows on the day the deal closes what's possible. You invest to join the journey together, and it's. It's a bit of a marriage. I mean, you can't... The balance sheet doesn't forget, right? Yeah. You're a shareholder. Yeah. You hold shares in the company. It's not a transaction. It's a relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's important that it's a win-win, that we there's transparency and respect like any long-term relationship. Mm-hmm. And then great things can come of it. And even great things that are unanticipated can come from it. Mm-hmm. And you can look down any one of our portfolio companies and say, how does this fit with Toyota? And I hear that a lot <laughs> from yeah. within Toyota. And, and I said, well, give me an example. Pick a company. The, one of the latest one was, well, Joby is, in our, is our air taxi, all electric, vertical takeoff and landing vehicle. What does that have to do with Toyota? And my argument is, if you think we can build more roads, you're kidding yourself in urban areas. The only place to go is up. Mm-hmm. And if you don't think Toyota is going to have a role at some point in vehicles, taking off from the ground. You're kidding yourself. Of course, Toyota is going to have a role there. In fact, Toyota is probably best positioned to play a role there. And although it may be a decade out, Toyota will be here. Mm-hmm. It's okay. We're patient. We're, uh, we've proved to be a very patient company. And I think these startups are going to return strategically Toyota in every single case, assuming that they grow their financial strength. Right. And they live to win. There's a great quote I like from Jim Mears, famous race car driver. He said, to finish first, you must first finish. And to, <laughs> to, to, to yeah. finish, you must be strong. Mm-hmm. And there, there are many corporate investors that say, show me a partnership with the business unit before, before we invest. We just announced today that we have a design win from TRI to put our technology in, in Toyota cars. It would not have happened if Jim would not have invested in the company. Mm-hmm. I think that when we had the discussions around fitting our technology in cars, it was an open discussion that came out of a year and a half relationship, which doesn't sound long, but it actually is a lot for the life of a startup. It was a very close relationship and there was a lot of transparency and trust. And then later when we came to solicit this together to TMC, Mm -hmm. then we were part of the family already, Mm. right? And that plays a big role, especially also in Japanese um, uh, culture. So I think the fact that a, we would never have had that discussion if we weren't a portfolio company. Mm-hmm. But B, then also kind of getting the blessing of corporate to do and taking such a big risk on a tiny company like ours, the fact that we're already part of the family, I think was crucial. Otherwise, you start encountering NIH, not invented here. And all the million reasons, right? There are a million reasons why you should not work with a startup. And they all bubble up once it becomes real. So I think this underlying partnership and investment uh, made it possible and it wouldn't have happened otherwise. And I think there's one more point to make here is that when we vet companies, it's a tough process. Last year, we saw more than a thousand startups we have, we, that Holy. came through our, our Holy door. Moly. That's yeah. a lot. So we say no a lot and we've yeah. done 19 deals. So our mission is to find the best teams, the best technologies and the best markets for Toyota. That's sort of job one so that we can attract these great entrepreneurs. Great entrepreneurs always have their pick of their investors. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be in competition for their their shares, their stock. And then we 
can bring them into the Toyota orbit, uh, get to know them, build the relationship, build the trust, understand their capabilities, and therefore set the groundwork for the strategic return that we expect uh, coming back to Toyota. Next, Austin and Tyler sat down with Ed Olson, CEO and co-founder of May Mobility, an autonomous shuttle startup that's only two years old, but is already offering driverless rides in two U.S. cities. Driving this transformational venture is a counterintuitive practice. Ed explains. We're about 18 months old. Wait, wait a minute. Hold on. Hold the phone. You're already in what? Two to three markets? Yeah, we're in two markets uh, <laughs> with carrying regular a, everyday people without yeah. liability waivers and NDAs. Uh, you can go to Columbus and anyone can ride our cars. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's awesome. That is so In fast. two years. Literally two years ago. Two years ago. How? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Stop the whole conversation. So, uh, yeah, how? <laughs> Step one, invent a time machine. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Uh, no, we 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 Where cheated. we're going, we don't need roads. <laughs> right. So we we really cheat at every step of the way. We have kind of an unofficial motto at May, which is to cheat harder, mm-hmm. to find uh, the practical solution to problems, and and to just get the thing done. Uh, we also had the advantage that we started off with a core of engineers that had been working on autonomous vehicles for over a decade together. How'd you get that? Uh, so in my other life, I'm a faculty member at the University of Michigan okay. and uh, the director of the April Robotics Lab. Talk about May Mobility's like your mission. You kind of talked about it now, but talk about the mission and then going to market. And actually, you're in a couple cities now. Yeah, I, I think it starts with the need that we saw. I think macro, you see a lot of transportation changing. It's It's less people buying a transportation device and more services, whether it's Uber and Lyft at the longer trip or scooters at the at the bottom of the market. Because they're wildly dangerous, I think it leaves a lot of the market segment uncovered. There's a lot of time when a scooter would be great, but you've got stuff to carry or the weather sucks. And so uh, we saw we started off with May with this seeing this huge opportunity, this unmet market of short routes where you didn't need to master all of San Francisco to to have something useful. That the the minimum viable product really can be small. It, yeah. it could be just a few handful of blocks at a time and you can start carrying people and doing some real good. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's really what drove us. And we we dive, dove in, dived in. Dived in, yeah. We, we made it happen. That's amazing. So where, what cities are you in? We are, uh, our first city was Detroit. Of course, Working naturally. for a property management company. It's that's actually- That's where all your engineers are. Uh, well, we're in Ann Arbor. <laughs> so okay. uh, still 45 minutes. Yeah. And then our, our second launch was in Columbus, Ohio. And that's one that's open to the general public. So anyone who's listening should go to Columbus, Ohio, and you can ride our car. You don't need to, to have an app. Just walk up and ride. And then uh, we'll be in uh, Providence, Rhode Island in the next few months with uh, Grand Rapids following. I'm curious. What does one of your vehicles look like? Obviously, this is a podcast. People can't see a photo. So paint us a picture with words, please. So imagine a a smallish minivan that okay. seats six people. Oh, okay. The the back is two uh, four seats that face each other. So we call that uh, campfire seating. So you can walk around and have a drive around and have a, an actual conversation. Mm-hmm. And then there's two seats that face forward as well. Uh, they are street legal vehicles that are on the road mixing with every everybody else. Uh, in Detroit, that's everything from uh, drivers and pedestrians to pedal pubs and party goers oh, and uh, mounted police, you name it. And uh, the other thing is that it's, it's, there's a huge amount of glass. So everywhere you look, you can see out. And so one of the first reactions that we get from people is that they sit down and their eyes just go up and they see the skyline all around them, especially at night. It's oh, wow. beautiful. Yeah, I'm sure. But it wasn't always that way, right? The seating and the experience, did it change from when you started to how it is now? Full 18 months ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So actually, you know, strap yourself in. We, from the founding of the company, when we really got started in May of 2017, that's when our first funding arrived, we were operational in Detroit for the first time in October of that year. What? That's insane. <laughs> so, that's insane. So, wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> how? You start with a good team. And you bite off a reasonable technical problem, something you can do. And you say, it's okay if there's some things that, some roads that we don't bite off in the first time around, but we can, we can accomplish good by doing what we can do. That's was so it also helpful to have the relationships that you did in Detroit 
already. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Yes. Th- so we don't just show up and say, hey, you know, the law says we can do this. So here we go. It's really important for us to build relationships with, with everybody. Uh, of course, the customer, but the city, the state, the Fed, yeah. you know, other stakeholders like, uh, you know, the bicycle riders, the transit workers that are worried about their jobs. We really try to take a kumbaya approach and, and make sure everybody's on board with, with how this kind of scary new technology is actually going to help them. The main value proposition that we have is that we can reduce the average wait time for when you're waiting for a shuttle. So imagine most places where you have a shuttle that might be operating or a bus or, or whatever it is. But if you have to wait 20 minutes for, for it to come by then it fills you with anxiety, right? It's not reliable. You're worried about, can I hang out at this, I'll say, cafe another five minutes? uh, Or am I going to miss my bus? Mm -hmm. That is a huge opportunity. And I think that's where autonomous cars come into play. We can put more vehicles on the road because we don't have, have the drivers. And that means that the average wait time goes way, way down. Yeah. And so now as you are sitting at your pub, trying to, or cafe, cafe thinking yes. about where you want to go next. Probably a pub, let's be honest. <laughs> you, you just keep, you want another beer? No problem. It's not going to change how long it's going to take for you to get to the next pub. And so that's what we do. We make transportation really easy, effortless, so that when you reach out for it, it's there. Mm-hmm. So app or no app? You said no app, right? Today, there's mm-hmm. no app. Mm-hmm. So most of the routes that we serve today have known pickup and drop-off locations. How do people know? In such a in such a generation of people that I feel like are using this service, they're like, uh, oh, let me look up. Is it website? How do they find out? So in the case of, of uh, our current customers, mm-hmm. there are signs up on the road. Okay. And many of them were, you know, find out about these because of press and our community outreach. Mm-hmm. As more people adopt this technology, like, are you finding oh man, we need to get more on the road. We need to go to more places. Like, And then how do you keep up with that? I mean, as you're trying to roll out to new cities as well. Yes. So one of the goals here is to reverse, uh, we call it the vicious cycle of declining ridership. Mm-hmm. So imagine that you're a bus service provider. Uh, buses are expensive. Uh, and so you put as few buses on route as you can, mm-hmm. which means that there's a longer wait time which means that it's not convenient to ride, which means that the ridership goes down, which means that you can't afford to put as many buses on the road, which means the wait time goes higher and higher. This is a vicious cycle. And it happens everywhere. This is the bane of every transportation planner, this vicious cycle. So what we fundamentally hope to do is by being able to improve the level of service that will drive ridership up. So turn this into a virtuous cycle. If you really can can just reach out and go to the bus stop and know that you don't have to wait long and it's going to be there and it's trustworthy and the driver hasn't flaked yeah. and the ride experience is going to be good and you're not going to be worried about who the driver is today, you're going to use the service more. And that that's not just theory. That's actually what's happening. We're seeing that on these routes. In Detroit, we are 30,000 trips in to that, that launch. Wow. wow. And so we've seen ridership steadily grow over time as people get used to the idea that, whoa, this is actually really easy and really convenient. And it changes the way people behave. And that's really exciting to transportation planners too. We change their behavior, then maybe they're not bringing their personally owned car into the densest urban course. Right. Which is a huge problem. What are some of the main challenges that you've faced? I mean, it seems like having grown so quickly and especially considering that in the field that you're in, it's not like you can just go, oh, let's build the thing and ship it, right? I mean, you're talking with the, the communities, you're talking with the various levels of government. What are some of the biggest challenges in being able to scale this quickly? So there's a lot of challenges that we face. We're a small company and the business that we've built has a lot of moving pieces. So we not only build the vehicles, we not only write the software, but we're the ones actually operating the vehicles and maintaining them in the field. Wow. And so th- this, is, this is necessary. It's not necessarily desirable. If you could build a business without all that, all that complexity, that'd be great. But if you want to build a safe product and really know that the whole thing works and that the vehicles are being maintained properly, that's the only way to do it. Mm-hmm. And so that's the complexity that we face with. Scaling is, is hard. Our first first launch in Detroit took us months to get ready, but we've gotten so much better at it. Our, we're on a really fast growth curve. Uh, we, we can now get to a new city and launch and run in a few days. What? 
that's insane. This the speed is just insane. Like yeah. I just can't. I mean, especially when you're dealing with like governments and all these like various like complexities. Like the fact that you can move so quickly. Well, happily now the limiting factor is oftentimes the contracting process. Is it really? Yeah. So contracting is much slower than uh, our ability to launch the technology. Wow. So what level is the technology at now versus sort of where you hope it to be in two, three, five years? Short version is all of our routes today have safety drivers. And that's, that's a good thing. Um, it's actually a good thing even when the technology is fully ripe and ready to go. Whenever we launch in a city, we're going to start off with brand ambassadors in the car. We call right. them fleet attendants. Okay. Because it's going to be new. Yeah. And we're going to need to provide that level of comfort so people can can figure out what they're supposed to do. And ask a lot of questions, I'm sure. That's right. But the economics of this, this business really take off when we don't need those safety drivers. Right. And at least not in every vehicle. Uh, obviously, the margins improve. Uh, the amount of uh, staffing that we need to do goes down. And that decreases the complexity of us scaling and growing the business. Uh, so the main thing that we're really excited about is the same factors that allowed us to launch really quickly carving away technical complexity by picking routes that are relatively simple, those are the exact same factors that are going to allow us to remove safety drivers in the near future. Mm-hmm. Right, once you do that same route for the 5,000th time, you're pretty sure that you've got all the, the main ideas of like, okay, cool, we know that this light is slow, we know that people like to cross in this intersection or whatever the case is, you kind of have it mapped out. That's exactly right. We drive the same route in Detroit 200 times a day. So we have a really good line of sight on what works what needs to get done, what the full spectrum of experiences that a vehicle can have on that relatively short route. If we were going to try to do the same thing on the scale of San Francisco or Pittsburgh or even all of Detroit, the, the list of things would just be so long that it would be much harder for us to, to figure out what, where, where we are and how far we have to go. But that's like a great future goal, right? I mean, considering how quickly you guys are moving, the idea that you can get something up and running, you're getting all the data, you're learning, and you're sort of growing this thing. And it's like, once you have one route, okay, cool, let's add another and another and another. It's much easier than like, let's build something that's completely autonomous that goes everywhere at all times, cool, go. Like, it's just, just not practical right now. Yeah, so so I would call that like Pluto, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, exactly. that's the end destination. Mm-hmm. And if you want to, if, if you're building, building a rocket and you want to go to Pluto, you don't actually point your rocket ship at Pluto and light off the engine. <laughs> You point it at Jupiter and you do a gravity assist around Jupiter and it swings you over to Pluto faster than you would have gotten there anyway. That's a great reference. So, <laughs> Elon, you're listening. <laughs> yeah. So, Jupiter are these routes that we're doing right now. Yeah. They're these routes that allow us, that we can get to easier and we're going to learn so much in the process of building and improving that service that we'll develop so much speed that we'll get to that end destination faster. So, then how does a company like Toyota AI Ventures, being a partner, investing in you. How does that help you get there? So Toyota, first of all, is an amazing company in terms of knowing about how to build a quality product. We're pretty different than most AV companies in that we have a lot of OEM background. So I think we we greatly appreciate what automakers can do well. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we think that we we can be very fast innovators and that's a very complementary kind of, kind of relationship. So First answer, I guess, is the conventional strengths that you would think of, of of an OEM. But Toyota AI Ventures in particular has some other strengths that have been really, really valuable that you wouldn't think of. Uh, so, for example, the leadership in Toyota have a lot of startup experience. Yeah, They know how to grow and scale an enterprise company. And those enterprise kinds of companies look a lot like our business model. You know, we're not selling software, but we're selling mobility services. And so the sales cycles are very similar. Toyota's also really well-connected in terms of the regulatory environment. Mm -hmm. And we can collaborate on on how to interface with state and federal governments. So it's it's been really useful. We still can't get over how much May Mobility has done in just two years. But what does the future of May Mobility look like? The vast majority of companies in the space are robo-taxi companies. And robo-taxi market is a great market. It's enormous trillions of dollars. Mm -hmm. But it's not ripe. Yeah. Nobody can do it. The technology doesn't exist to do this safely. And certainly not in a way where you've got a business at the end of the day that can make money. And if you're spending $500,000 to build a vehicle, you're not going to make money off of that vehicle. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at the competitive landscape, we see almost all of the capital way off in the corner doing, trying, chasing after robo taxis. And the market that we're after, which are 
enterprise and corporate customers operating in a more simple type of environment has has they've ceded it to us. Mm-hmm. And so we've got a wide open wide open landscape for us to go and expand and gobble up market, which we think is really exciting. We're going to get our brand out there. People will, will know who May Mobility is. They'll learn to trust us. We're going to learn about what makes riders happy. And by the time robo-taxis start to make technical and economic sense, we'll be ready. Perfect. That's a lot of sense. Do you have May Mobility vehicles here at CES? We do have a vehicle here at, at CES. It's a concept vehicle. It's a Myla 2.0, which is a, a vision of what you would, how you'd build a vehicle if you had a blank slate. And so it seats four people. They face each other. There's uh, two large digital displays, touch displays, where uh, they, can, they can pull information or digital entertainment, or they can turn it off and have a conversation with the people across from them. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really exciting to imagine how people are going to find new ways to create value with the time that we can save them. So when we talked to Jim earlier today, we also talked with Intuition Robotics, you know, which they're looking at, you know, uh, taking what they have from an experience standpoint in the home and maybe applying it to cars in the future or something like your vehicle. So how has the in-vehicle experience changed for people from when you started two years ago to now? When we started, I think appropriately, we were, all, we were completely focused on get them from point A to point B. And if they have a seat and a seat belt, put a check in that checkbox. You've uh, done it. <laughs> that's right. But the, the powerful thing about actually having real riders in there is that whether you want it or not, they're going to give you feedback. Mm-hmm. And so when we did our pilot in October in Detroit, we had to move them from point A to point B done. And we started to get feedback like, needs more cup holders. Uh, it's cold in here. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, stuff that's like, yeah, but but heaters aren't sexy. Yeah. Right? I don't need my PhDs to build a heater. Yeah. No, actually you do, right? This is, the technology is, is just a piece of it. At the end, we have to have happy riders. And so we've done a ton of work on that vehicle from, from mundane, unsexy things. Like you want a warm car? This car is warm. It's a good big heater in there that even in a cold winter with the doors opening all the time, you're going to get a blast of hot air, which is going to give you that sense. You open the door, you sit in, it's like, oh, oh yeah. Nice. yeah. That sounds dumb or tri- not trivial. It, it's not high tech. No, I get it. It's it doesn't not, sound Silicon Valley, yeah. but that's super important. Mm-hmm. And it's so, little things. It's doing the little things really well because then you're not freezing into your next destination. That's right. And actually one of our company values is to sweat the details. And that, that stems from both a safety culture of, you know, small mistakes can, uh, can lead to significant problems, but also the sense that the way that you can communicate to a rider that, that this is safe and that this is not a science project is by holistically having every detail covered. You know, the, the, the finishing touches are on the vehicle. There, there's not wires dangling out. It, there's, you, you want to build the confidence for the rider that whatever whatever crazy scenario they're worried about, you've got it. We've got it covered. And you do that at first by sweating all the details and making sure that, that everything about the vehicle is fun. Amazing. Ed, thank you so much for joining the Toyota Untold podcast. I'm Tyler, along with Austin. Hello. Austin, thank you for being my co-host on this journey. This has been a fun one. Yeah. You can see what the May Mobility concept car looks like by heading over to Austin Evans' YouTube channel or checking them out at maymobility.com. But before we wrap our CES coverage, we're going to check back in with Jim Adler to learn a little bit more about what Toyota AI Ventures is investing in and the exciting startups that may be changing our lives in the coming years. We have an investment in a company called Connected Signals. It's doing uh, real-time traffic signal acquisition. We have a a simulation company called Parallel Domain that is doing 3D generation of cities for simulators. Uh, So there's that base level of technology. Then there's the stack, the the perception prediction planning stack that any autonomous system needs to implement in order to be successful. Uh, We talked about some of them uh, earlier today in a session where we're looking at cutting-edge sensors, uh, imaging radar, uh, frequency modulated lidar and inexpensive lidar, uh, which is so these are the the eyes of of these autonomous systems, and then there's the prediction. How do you once you know your environment? How do you know what everything else is going to do? 
Perceptive Automatize is one of the companies that's doing that for autonomous cars. And then on the application side, what do you do with an autonomous stack? What do you do with this thing? What services can you bring to market? And we're looking at a whole bunch of them from air taxi to micro shuttles that are self-driven to autonomous forklifts with this company, uh, Third Wave. Tremendous number of these companies that are really not just have great technology, but also have a business model. Because again, it comes back to financial strength. Yeah. Uh, if you don't have a customer for your product, investors are not customers. It's another, one, another mistake startups make. Right? <laughs> right? They, they, think I, they think I'm their customer. They think the investor is their customer. No, no, no. As, mm. as I, I like to say, the startup is the customer right. to the investor. The investor is not the customer to the startup. You know who the customer of the startup is? The people that buy your product. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those are your customers. Yeah. And anybody who is bringing a technology stack to market needs to uh, really understand the customer and sell to them. Thank you guys so much. This has been just an education for me personally. Austin continues to educate me all the time. <laughs> but thank you for coming on Toyota Untold. Thanks for having us. This of has course. been a lot of fun. Good. Thanks again to Jim Adler, Door Schooler, and Ed Olson for taking the time to talk with us at CES. And a special thanks to our co-host, Austin Evans. You can learn more about these startups and everything else really cool on the show floor by checking Austin out on YouTube. Thanks for joining us today on our Tech Talk, not our TED Talk, but our Tech Talk. And make sure you subscribe to Toyota Untold wherever you get your podcasts.